I'm reading Genesis chapter 3, and this is the New American Standard Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we consider now the lie that our adversary has told us about you and the truth about you as you have revealed it for us in Holy Scripture, we ask for the illumination of our hearts and our minds by your spirit of truth. I ask that you would forgive all of my sin and purify these unclean lips of mine and use them for your glory. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of you know that uh, after 17 years of being an itinerant preacher, I finally got around to uh, getting into a seminary program. And uh, as I'm still preaching on a regular basis, one of my hopes from the seminary program that I, I'm going through was that with each new course, I would be able to, uh, to write at least one new sermon from the, the course material. That didn't always work out, out so well, and there's been some courses I've looked back at and said, you know, that just won't preach. But uh, thankfully, my, my last two courses ha have uh, really kind of taken up the slack, and I've been supplied with more material that I could preach in the next couple of years. The lecturer for the course that I just finished is uh, one Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. You may have heard of him. He's a good Scottish uh, a solid Scottish Presbyterian minister. I had the privilege of hearing him speak a couple of years ago when uh, my daughter Abigail and my daughter-in-law Katie uh, graduated from Covenant College. He was the, uh, the commencement speaker. Dr. Ferguson has pastored Presbyterian churches here in the United States and he's also written books and he's taught in our seminaries. Something he said in one of his lectures about Genesis chapter 3 kind of piqued my interest because this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Dr. Ferguson said something about Genesis 3 in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. He said that the safest general characterization of the message of the Bible is that it is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. Let me say that again. The safest general characterization of the message of the Bible is that it is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. Now, at first blush, I thought that seemed like a kind of crass way to describe the scriptures. But there's actually a lot of truth in that. Let's look at verse 15 again. The Lord says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now for centuries, the church has referred to this one little verse as the Proto-Evangelium. Kids, if you memorize that, you can go home and impress your parents. It's a good, solid Greek theological term that we apply to a Hebrew text. So what does that mean, proto-evangelium? Well, it comes from two separate words. The first part is proto, and you might recognize that it, uh, in English we have prototypes or archetypes. So we're looking at, at the prototype of something here, and the, the word evangelium is the, um, the Greek word for the gospel or for the good news. So Genesis 3.15 is known as the prototype of the gospel. It's the first announcement of the good news that God was going to do something 
about the corruption that sin had introduced into the creation. And really, the rest of the history of redemption flows from that point all the way through to the end of the Bible. And there's a lot of really good principles that we can pull from this little gospel prototype. And the one that I want to talk to you about this morning is called the truth principle. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, which, uh, which Tom read for us a little earlier, Paul gives us his perspective on the early chapters of Genesis. And he helps us understand how we should view what happened in Genesis 3. And one of the things that Paul tells us about the whole human race in Romans 1.25, and we need to remember that back in Genesis 3, the whole human race is Adam and Eve. But one of the things that Paul tells us about the human race is that they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Well, what does that have to do with Genesis 3.15? It's very important that we grasp that one of the things that is happening in the scriptures, starting with this prototype of the gospel, is that God is exposing a lie. And at the same time, Satan is seeking to embed that lie into the thinking of the human race. And the question we need to answer is, what is that lie? If we're going to reject the lie and embrace the truth, we have to know what the lie is. And what does that have to do with Genesis 3.15? Well, first of all, when we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. One of the first things that we notice about that is that God is deliberately setting up a conflict between the seed or the descendants of the woman and the seed or the descendants of Satan. And just as the word seed can be singular or plural in the English language, the same thing is true of the Hebrew word. And while the first part of verse 15 is plural, and it talks about two categories of people, the seed of the woman, who are the people of God, and the seed of Satan, who are the people of Satan, the second part of verse 15 talks about two individuals who were, where the seed of the woman, singular, is in conflict with the serpent himself. And ultimately, the individual seed of the serpent will, excuse me, the individual seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the, and the seed, of course, is the Messiah. And Paul even talks about that idea of Jesus Christ being the seed in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to be skipping around here a little bit in the Bible and let the scriptures interpret the scriptures because certainly they can do it much better than I ever could. But we have this idea that God has set up this conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And the Messiah is seen as our champion who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Way back near the end of the Bible, in, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the apostle tells us that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So near the end of the Bible, we're told virtually the same thing that we find in the gospel prototype that the seed of the woman, 
the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is set in conflict with the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And ultimately, he will defeat Satan. Now, if you're already with me near the back of your Bible, just turn over a few more pages to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, starting with the first verse, John tells us this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would no longer deceive the nations. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that Satan is no longer just a serpent. He's grown into a monstrous dragon. And regardless of whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or panmillennial, you know, it all pans out in the end. Regardless of your, uh, your eschatology, it figures very prominently that in the, the defeat of Satan here, it figures prominently in that, in that defeat that Satan is deprived of, of his ability to deceive the nations. I'm not a big fan of the NIV translation, but I do really like the way it translates Jesus' words in John chapter 8 and verse 44, where Jesus says, When the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. And Satan's goal from the beginning was to embed into our thinking, into the thinking of the human race, this lie so that we would exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in order to destroy the works of the devil, our champion must expose that lie. He says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And if somewhere in the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, such that the serpent can no longer promote his deception or speak his lie, we need to ask, what is Satan's lie about God? Let's take a look at how things build up to, to the first perpetration of that lie in Genesis 3. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And when God says that something is very good, it must be really good, because God has very high standards, much higher than we could even imagine. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And at the beginning of chapter 2, Moses tells us that God instituted an ordinance of resting one day in seven. Not for his benefit, but for ours. Jesus tells us in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So even before the fall, God was concerned that the people that he had created in his own image would have adequate rest. And one of the curses that we see that falls on the man is that he's going to have to work hard 
and that his work is not going to be as productive as it was previously. And rest would be elusive. One of the things I think we all feel so much of the time is that we are just plain exhausted. And we know that our lives are not near as difficult as our ancestors who lived before us. In chapter 2, we're told that God created a beautiful garden as a place for Adam to live. And he filled it with all kinds of good things to eat. And God even provided an Adam with a wife so he wouldn't have to be alone in the garden. He had somebody to share it with. Things were really good for our first parents in the Garden of Eden. But in chapter 3, Adam and Eve do the one thing, the one thing that God told them not to do. He had given them all these great and varied things to eat, but he said to them, from the, any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And the text of Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now some of your translations might say that the serpent was more subtle or more cunning, or more shrewd than any other beast. He was more clever than Eve. And the serpent was able to deceive her. Paul even reiterates that idea in the New Testament. And Eve and her husband do the one thing that God told them not to do. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. Now, on the surface, it looks like Satan's lie to Eve was simply that they can't trust God's word. But Satan was more crafty. He was more subtle, more cunning than that. And under the surface, there was a much bigger lie that was more sinister and more destructive. And Satan was seeking to embed that lie into the thinking of the human race. But what is that lie? And what's the truth? When you look at the, what the commentators have to say about that in Romans one twenty-five, they are not very helpful. Paul tells us in Romans one twenty-five that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, but he doesn't explicitly tell us what the lie is. John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans 1.25, he says, When the truth of God is turned to a lie, his glory is obliterated. And you look at that and you say, yeah, I understand that's true, but that doesn't tell me what is the lie. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on Romans 1.25, tells us that the lie is a metaphor for false gods. But he doesn't tell us what the lie is. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, doesn't even mention the lie. And uh, my New Geneva Study Bible, which is where I often like to go uh, first for notes, it doesn't even have a comment on, Gen on uh, Romans 1.25. Now, as someone who worked for over 30 years as an engineer and as a scientist, that makes me crazy. I like things to be spelled out. You know, don't just tell me, well, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and there's, 
kind of this lie out here and let's go on to the next topic. If they exchange the truth of God for a lie, then there must be a truth and there must be a lie. So what is the lie? The lie about God was first perpetrated by Satan in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And the lie is the diabolical idea that lies behind these words. The serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, like I said, at first, we might think that the big lie is what Satan says in verses 4 and 5, that what God told Adam and Eve just wasn't true, that the word of God is not trustworthy, that you're not really going to die if you eat that fruit. God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. And in a sense, that's a pretty wicked lie because it undermines the authority of the word of God. And we believe that the word of God is given by inspiration of God to be our highest rule of all faith and life. So what Satan says in verses 4 and 5 is a pretty damaging notion that he has introduced into the human race. But what he says in verse 1 is far more subtle. It's more cunning. It's more sinister. The serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. What Satan is suggesting is that God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with all its beauty and all its delights and with all its glory and then he wanted to withhold it from Adam and Eve. You remember, things were really good for Adam and Eve in the garden. It was complete. It was beautiful, restful, delicious. And what Satan suggests is that God doesn't really want Adam and Eve to have any of these good things. It would be like a father taking his young children to Toys R Us in early December and showing them all the wonderful toys and gadgets and games there, and then with a maniacal laugh saying, you're not going to get any of these things for Christmas. And that's what Satan was suggesting to Eve. This is the point at which Satan slips into Eve's thinking, the idea that the glory of God is your enemy, and God is your enemy, and God is not to be trusted, and God's will, God's desires, will disappoint you. And Eve believed the lie rather than the truth. And men and women have been believing and living that lie ever since, including Christians. Now, Satan seemed to really like this particular lie. He seems to have found it so effective that he even tried it out on Jesus himself. Satan tried to get the second Adam, the seed of the woman, our champion, to fall for the same lie in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness, we are told 
again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The devil says, Jesus, here it is. Here's all these beautiful kingdoms of the world with all their glory. But the Father doesn't love you. He does not want to bless you. And he doesn't want you to possess the glory of these kingdoms. But Jesus, I'll give it to you. And if Jesus had believed that lie, if he had been deceived like Eve, we would all go to hell. Fortunately for us, from all eternity past, God ordained that even after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus still had the presence of mind to see through the lie. It's almost in epidemic proportions within the Christian church. We fallen men and women believe the lie about God. You know, there are some folks in the church who try to tell you, you I believe in a good God of love. And you want to find a gentle way of saying, you're lying through your teeth. You couldn't possibly be believe the idea that God loves you and live the way you live. In the deep recesses of your soul, you utterly mistrust God because you have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And the fact of the matter is, when we are regenerated, that lie is not automatically banished from our souls. In the lives of so many Christians, when something goes wrong, their automatic assumption is that God has it in for them. Think about it this way. Have you ever heard the gospel preached this way? I I know I've heard it preached this way. The reason that God loves you is because Jesus Christ died for you. So come, trust in Christ, and the Father will love you. Friends, that is not the gospel. In fact, that is completely backward from the gospel. But you can see how that way of thinking embeds in our minds the idea that God the Father is against us. His Son has died on the cross for my salvation, and that's had this effect on God the Father that now he loves me. In some strange way, we've embraced the idea that Jesus Christ has kind of taken the Father's arm and twisted it behind his back so that he will love us. And of course, the theological implications of that are disastrous for our understanding of the Trinity. But the personal and spiritual repercussions of that is that in the back of our head, we hear this nagging, sinister, serpentine voice telling us, God the Father does not really love you, and he does not want to bless you. And that's the lie about God. To disprove that lie, all we have to do is go to the scripture that the Arminians like to hit us with, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But what does that tell us about the people who will believe in him? 
absolutely nothing beyond the fact that they will believe in him. But what does it tell us about God? It tells us that God loved us first. That God sent his son because he loved us. It's not that the son died for us and then God loved us. God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for us so that we could love him back. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, who was our champion from Genesis 3.15 all the way through Revelation, Jesus seemed to find this lie well embedded in his contemporary world, even among the most religious Jews. That's one of the reasons he tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. So much of our emphasis in that parable is on the younger prodigal son who had squandered his inheritance and how happy the father was when the son finally came to his senses and returned home. And the father throws this feast to celebrate this homecoming. But the lie, the lie is alive and well in the heart of the older son. The older son says, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. The older son says, I've served you all this time but you never even gave me a party. And the father says, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. He says, don't you understand? You don't just have a party. All that is mine is yours. The older son's focus is so narrow that he believes that his father has given him nothing, that his father does not love him, and that his father does not want to bless him. He believed the lie. In reality, the father says, Everything, everything, everything that is mine is yours. So when we look at Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We see that we have a champion in the seed of the woman. And our champion appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He came to confront the filthy lie that Satan perpetrated on the human race in Genesis 3. And he does it over and over and over in the scriptures until we as God's people are left in the position of believing with all our hearts in the goodness of God no matter what. As we live our lives, so often we come to believe in the goodness of God only thing, when things are going well. You know, you may have had a conversation, you know, you know how are you doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm just doing great. The Christian life is just really great. Oh yeah, well, how do you know it's great? 
oh, well, the Lord is really blessing me. There's, there's so many good things happening. But what about when there aren't good things happening? What about when the Lord who gave is the Lord who takes away? How do you know he still loves you? Well, the answer is because in a broken world, and we all know that our world is broken, in a broken world, you never look to the providences of God as the final resting place for your conviction that the Lord God loves you with his whole being. There is only one place that you look. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, his son crushed the head of the serpent and exposed his damnable lie. Let's pray.